1 Peter chapter number 3 tonight. 1 Peter 3, then right after the service, those who've signed up, we have the spaghetti fundraiser afterwards that will help. And our young people going to string camp, and that will be this summer. We've been doing that now several years, and it's been paying off. We're seeing the dividends from that. We thank you for your investment. Also with this, we'll be coming up soon This in helping the kids. We're going to have the, like we've done in the past, where you can uh, pay for their services, rent a kid, um, and you can, we'll help establish the amount, and so you can hire them to do some work around the house, and, and mine are trying to get me to pay to do work around our house, and it's not quite the idea that we had in mind, but uh, we, we're going to put that out just so you can keep that in mind, and if you have some things that, that they could do for you, um, mow, pick up trash, build an, an addition to the house. There's a lot of things they could do to help, and so we want to be able to, to make that available. And we'll talk to you about that a little bit later, and then pray for Brother Carsley and the team as they're heading down in the morning to uh, Central Florida, Ocala, Florida, Memorial Baptist Church, doing a youth meeting th that week, and Brother Carsley will be staying and preaching next Sunday, and pray for his wife as well. We've been praying she has been, she's really a very significant factor in the ministry uh, there at the camp, but obviously um, uh, Brother Scott's wife, and, um, but she's, she's gotten victory and uh, come through about a cancer, and uh, she's going back in for a checkup Wednesday. They picked up some things, and they're going to do an ultra scan on Wednesday. So let's just pray if you think about it. It's, it's one thing to go through something like that. And it's another thing to go through it when you're not there with your wife. And, and so would you pray for them? I know he would appreciate that as well. And one thing I can say about Canaan is among many wonderful things is that we do take praying seriously. And, and I'm glad for that. And so you'll have some people to pray. Uh, and, Speaking of praying, let me add a couple things to the schedule to uh, my itinerary. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to leave, go to Wisconsin, and come back Wednesday. I'll be here for the Wednesday service. But I'll be preaching at the Victory Conference the following week, and it's their big 30th anniversary, I believe is what it is, 30th, 35th, 30th anniversary. It's a big anniversary. And, um, but Monday and Tuesday, it's fasting and praying. For, with the speakers who will be going. So um, I, I will be getting away tomorrow, coming back again on Wednesday. But just, just I, I pray about our prayer meetings because uh, the devil would love to get people to think that doesn't work. But if Jesus prayed and all of his prayers got answered and he said that we can pray in his name, uh, that means there's a lot of power in prayer. And remember, prayer can do anything that God can do, and God can do anything, so prayer has no limitation as we get a hold of God. And so would you pray about that? And, and then the next week, I am not only, I was doing a session at the Victory Conference, but I'm also, will be preaching on the Wednesday night as well, so be speaking twice the following week, and if you want to add that and pray with me and for me, I would greatly appreciate that. I appreciate very much the praying that took place for us last week while we were gone, and God just did a, an incredible work. And what we were praying for, we, we had to, I mentioned before we left, that we had raised 
nearly $95,000 in just a few days. We needed to get to a threshold of 181000 and we got beyond that little over 200000 last week. And so the Baptist Times is going back into circulation, and we're not done yet. And there's so much more that God's doing, but I wanted to thank you for praying. First Peter chapter number 3, this is, I think, the 15th message in this series as we're looking at the aspect of Peter's emphasis, and that is to be filled with hope, to abound with hope. In fact, the very first command given to us in chapter number 1 and verse number 13 is to hope to the end for the grace. To hope is to, hope to the end is to be filled up with hope, to be um, overflowing with hope over what? Over grace, God's enabling power. And so he's moved right along in giving us this kind of hope-filled expectation in God and why. And we moved into chapter number three, and, and, and this is in the context of the chapter number two where he picks up in verse number 13, verse number 11, more, uh, more so, and, and talking about our testimony and submission and living right with those around us, servants uh, of God, uh, honoring those masters that are over us, and just having right mindset, right spirit. And, um, they, and he tells us that Jesus was our example. He's not done telling us about Jesus as our example. We get into chapter 3, he says, likewise, ye wives. So he goes on with this matter of submission. Only is everybody under a realm of submission to somebody in some place, but then in the home. And the importance of the husband and wife relationship of wives being in submission to the husband, husband uh, treating his, their, his wife with a cherishing and a nurturing understanding. And the point is that he makes is that so our, our relationship can be right with the Lord, that we can experience God, that we can have our prayers answered. And then we saw in verse number 8, he tells us just what following Jesus looks like, what maturity in Christ looks like, verse 8 through 12. And so I want us to pick up and reread verse number 12, and we'll read down to verse number 17. And so I invite you to stand with me, and let's look at this and see another aspect in which Peter says we can have hope, we should have hope, verse number 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and, if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but... Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Tonight, I want us to look at this idea of hope in the midst 
of suffering. Now, he's not done talking about suffering. It's going to come up more. In fact, the whole book is dealing with suffering. But suffering when you've done right. Hope in the midst of suffering, even when you've done everything right. Thank you. Please be seated. As we saw last time, verses 8 through 12, what a spiritually mature person looks like. Peter describes that you can be spiritually mature, you can walk with God, be right with God, and it will provoke a wrong response from those in the world around us. And he's saying, don't be surprised when these responses are not always positive. Many in the world that we live will provide, instead of an amen for your consecration to God, will give conflict instead of peace. There's sin instead of purity. We live in a society where pride exists instead of humility, hatred instead of compassion, and that's the norm. And some will view believers as speed bumps on their superhighways of self-gratification. Or others may simply wonder, what would motivate somebody to live such a strange life? Why, why would there be people who want to be consecrated, who want to live holy and have hope in God? And so you have those that in our society that may look at Christians and, and be irritated, and others may be just simply perplexed. But the point I think Peter's trying to get across is that if you're a child of God, you're living in a hostile territory. See, we're twice-born people in a world of once-born citizens. And we're going to be going against the tide most of the time. What we believe and how we live, well, we start at a different source. We follow a different course. We're headed toward a different conclusion. And truth is, a lot of people may view it to be open season on Christianity. So Peter, he asked his readers to consider a thought, an important question. Notice in verse 13, he says, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Now remember, verses 8 through 12 is his defining of what looks good and what followers of that which is good looks like. And I think we saw about nine virtues in verses 8 through 12. So what he's doing is he's giving us a general principle. In verse 13, it's a general principle. Notice again, who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? So if I were to paraphrase verse 13, here's what I would say. We could say that those who live honest lives will not suffer harm, usually. But that usually is very significant. For the most part, living this way, those strange in the world's eyes, will generally keep God's people out of trouble. Well, think about it. Paying off your debts... It'll keep the IRS from knocking at your door. When you stay pure physically, you'll avoid disappointments and scars. When you live humbly and peacefully, it'll prevent you from making enemies. When you maintain close relationships with other believers, you'll have others to help you through tough times. So Peter is giving us a general 
principle. And his advice for wise living will bring good to us, not harm. But even when it doesn't work out that way, well, living right has lasting advantages. Why? Well, because remember verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, his ears attend to their prayer. So we definitely want the ear of God. We definitely want the favor of God. We want the smile of God. And it's upon those who will follow verses 8 through 12 of being followers of Jesus Christ. Now, though the principle may be true most of the time, you live right, you're going to have favorable uh, results, a favorable response. Though that principle may be true most of the time and in most situations, well, Peter knows that there are exceptions. In certain times and places, right living finds opposition, even persecution, even for those who live carefully. Peter says in verse number 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, so here's the exception to his general rule. Now remember, 1 Peter really is a book of a handbook for survival. But it's not really a handbook for survival as much as it's a handbook for thrival. God doesn't want his people to survive. He wants us to thrive. And so Peter is now discussing this during this realm, this possibility of unfair treatment how Christians are to respond. You live right, by and large, it's going to go well. But there will be some opposition. It may even turn into persecution. But in so doing, God still has hope. And he gives hope. And he gives us about five different pieces of advice. Now, before we get to the five pieces of advice... I want us to look at and just understand as we're going into this, there are two different and distinct perspectives we can have. In other words, our response to unfairness, it's subjective. It's based on our perspective. And we have two options. Our perspective can either be human or divine. You can either approach and deal with the injustice, the unfairness based upon how you see it, or you can deal with it based upon how God sees it. The human perspective is, well, since life isn't fair, I'm going to get my share. Doesn't that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to anybody? And what, did you not, none of you get your nap? Did Brother Cherry have all of you at work this afternoon? I'm going to look out for number one. I will spend my energy setting things straight or making them right. I'm not going to take it any longer. The problem is you may get even, but you won't get peace. You may feel better in the short term, but you won't get lasting satisfaction. You might, might find a way to channel your anger, but if retaliation is your major goal, you will not glorify God. So those who live from this perspective they're more likely to live their lives as bitter, cynical, hostile people. And tragically, I've described just how many Americans live today. But you can go at it from a divine perspective. And that's the option that Peter is spelling out for us. 
The principle that Peter gives us is, is in essence, God doesn't miss anything. He's looking out for you. He's listening to your prayers. He's completely aware of the evil that's happening around us. God sees the evil. He's patient, yes, but He's just. He watches over the righteous. He opposes the wicked. And good prevails in the end. And as our choir sings, God always will win. He always wins. But if this is true, why doesn't He do something about the evil? Why does He let it go on so long? Have you ever wondered that? Well, here's why. Because God's timeline is infinite. He doesn't close His books at the end of the month. It may take a lifetime or longer before justice is served, but in the end, count on it, God will be just. In the end, He will work everything together for good and for His glory. Remember, we're often concerned about what time it is when God is more concerned about timing. That thought gives us hope. Hope beyond bruising. You as a believer can follow God and serve God and still experience bruising. And if we don't believe what that divine perspective has to say, then we're going to focus on our human perspective and we'll always end up the loser. We'll live our lives in a narrow tunnel of cynicism and bitterness like rats in a sewer. And eventually we will grow old being angry and jaded, and that's not how God's people ought to be. So let's look at some helpful insights and techniques to keep, keep hope alive. And um, notice in verse number 14, it says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake. I just want to point this out. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, in the New Testament Greek, there are four conditions introduced by the word if, I-F. And three were quite common. For example, there's a first class condition. It is something meaning assumed as true. And you find that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 and verse 6. So when it says if, it's assumed as true. There's a second class condition. It's assumed as not true. And that's in Galatians 1 and verse 10. Then there's a third class condition meaning maybe, maybe not, if. Maybe, maybe not. And we saw that over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. And, um, uh, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? Meaning maybe, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And, but then there's a fourth class condition. It means unlikely, but it's possible. And that's the condition that is used here. So it could be paraphrased this way. It is unlikely that you should suffer for the sake of righteousness. But if you do, and so Peter says, I'm going to give you some hope because it is possible. And he suggests these five things. Remember, this is not my advice. This is God's advice. Human advice would say, kick him in the teeth, get even. We need to remember God's advice for how to respond when you do right, but you're treated wrong. Keep a three, five by, three by five card, maybe, 
with these things on here and appropriate these responses. How are we to respond when the exception to the rule occurs? Number one, are you ready? Verse 14, but, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Number one, consider yourself uniquely blessed by God. Consider yourself uniquely blessed by God. As far as the injustice itself is concerned, Peter's advice is be happy. Be happy about it. Consider yourself blessed. When we experience unfair treatment, we might think, what have I done wrong? Hasn't God seen how good I've been? Why is he allowing this? Remember James chapter 1? James talks about the same thing. James 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. Remember Dr. Jim's message? Happy? Well, Peter says, I'm actually going to use the word, be happy about it. Be happy. Consider yourself uniquely blessed by God. Well, how can believers actually count themselves blessed by God in light of unfair treatment? I mean, it sounds good, but, but it, it just it sounds like pie in the sky. Well, it's not. So first of all, you're blessed because God uses this kind of unfair treatment as part of his plan to strengthen and make you more like Christ. Was Jesus perfect? This is going to be a long message. He was perfect, sinless. Did he suffer? Yeah. And so he's making us more like Christ. That's what Paul said, Philippians 3.10. Paul, you have any prayer requests? Yeah. Would you pray that I would experientially know God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? And God says, you don't understand this, but you need some resistance training. And I'm going to use this. So rather than marking us outside God's will, unfair treatment for doing right indicates at times we're right in God's will. Second, we're blessed because we can look forward to a future reward for enduring trials. If we do it properly, if we respond rightly, we may be singled out in the mystery of God's sovereign plan. But then like Job, Job was rewarded for responding right and, and, and serving right. And, and so we can too. We can respond to injustice with a positive attitude. Number two, verse 14. But, and if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and be not, what's the word? Afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Number two, don't panic and don't worry. Don't panic. Don't worry. There's no reason to fear your enemy's methods of intimidation or to be troubled. Now, keep in mind, this may help, Peter's, the, the background of Peter's call to not panic and to not worry, it lies in Isaiah chapter number 8, verses 12 through 13. And Peter is, in essence, quoting Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 13, where the Lord called on his people, Israel, to turn away from fear and dread of the pagan nations threatening to wipe them out. 
And instead of fearing and trembling before the nations, they were to rely upon God's promises and God's power alone. And so Peter's saying, do not fear intimidation. Do not be troubled. It doesn't take a linguistic scholar to interpret this counsel. Peter puts his finger on two common responses. Panic and worry. And the truth is, I do both things when I operate in the flesh. When I come at it from human perspective. Don't you? And so notice Peter says, do not be afraid. The word afraid, the Greek word afraid is where we get our English word phobia. This kind of fear is the fear that seizes us with terror. It locks us down in a moment. It causes us to take flight, running away from the pressure. Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. There's no reason to run. Don't attempt to escape that trial. Don't panic. And then he says, don't be troubled. Trouble means to be agitated, to be uneasy. It's the idea of an inner turmoil or agitation. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, verse number 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let that inner turmoil and agitation occur. The energy and effort we expend worrying, it never solves anything. It usually makes situations worse because it creates a terrible inner turmoil that does what? It paralyzes us. Peter's counsel is that even when trials are pressing in, people are trying to intimidate us, you can have a calm spirit. As far as the persecutor or the instigator is concerned, how can we be free from panic and worry? How? Why? Well, here's how or why. Because we can know as Peter's getting across, God's on our side. Verse 12, his ears are open to your cry. He sees nothing is happening that's taking him by surprise. God's not looking down like a, a, uh, an unfit babysitter that says, uh-oh. No, God's watchful care is, is uh, highly involved in every move. He sees what's happening. He sees what led up to it. He sees what can be done next. He sees, he knows, he cares. Number three, when you do right but you suffer wrong, acknowledge Christ as Lord. Number three, even over this event. Acknowledge Christ's lordship even over the wrong that you're going through. Notice verse Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. We often overlook that first phrase. I will hear this verse quoted, and many will quote the second part that says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. But we can't dismiss the first part. The phrase sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, it is contrasting with being afraid and troubled. Sanctify, and again he's quoting Isaiah 8 verses 13 and 14. And, um, and so Isaiah is warning the, the, the people of God. He's warning them to not yoke up with ungodly alliances. Trust God. Lean on God for deliverance. And, 
And uh, Isaiah 8 and verse 13 reads this way, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself and let him be your fear and let him be your dread. See, in other words, instead of fearing the enemy, the opposition, the persecution, he says, why don't you fear God instead? You know, we, we can do this in prayer. When you feel that you've been wronged and you don't deserve it, you can respond by just praying something as simple as, Lord, you're with me right now right here, and you have your reasons for what's happening, you will not take advantage of me. You're much too kind to be cruel. You're much too good to be unjust. You care for me too much to let this get out of hand. Take charge. Use my integrity to defend me. Give me the grace to stay calm. Control my emotions. Be Lord over my present situation. That's what sanctify the Lord means. Allow him to be, be Lord, sanctify, set apart. Let him be Lord in our life. And that's, I think, a good example we can find of this is Stephen. In Acts chapter number 7, he sanctified Christ as Lord in his heart. He gave an eloquent penetrating defense of Jesus before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And this infuriated those who heard him. Their hatred raged out of control. You remember their response in Acts 7, verse 55 and 56? They wouldn't listen. They covered their ears. They rushed upon him. They, they were, they, they were uh, so uh, furious and they drove him out of the city and they violently stoned Stephen for telling them the truth. Stephen died. Verse 59 and 60 of Acts 7 says he called upon the Lord and he said to the Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice. He said, Lord, uh, do, do not hold these guilty of this. And, and, and in other words, he, he's interceding for them. And the Bible says, and he died. And here's the interesting thing too about Stephen's death. He died taking his last breath and Jesus stood because here was one who died right, sanctifying the Lord Jesus in his heart only because he did right. The Bible says he was filled and led by the Holy Spirit. And yet he was stoned to death. And it caused Jesus to be so moved that Jesus stood for him. Stephen didn't deserve their savage attacks. He certainly didn't deserve death. But because of that, he could have died in bitterness, cynicism. He could have died with curses on his lips Instead, he sanctified that moment to God and he died with a prayer on his lips asking forgiveness for those who so mercilessly killed him. Praying that God would so work in their heart that they would find salvation. Why? Because he sanctified the Lord. He allowed the Lordship of Christ to, to, to take precedence over that particular situation. All the difference situations would be in my life when it seems to be out of control I let the one who's in control to have control what a difference it'd be number four notice verse 15 but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts here's the next part and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness 
and fear. Number four, be ready to give a witness. Be ready to give a witness. It says, be ready always to give an answer. The word answer is the Greek word apologia. You've heard of an apologetic class maybe. It means simply to give an account, to provide legal testimony or defense. Apologetics comes from this. See, the, Peter says we should be ready to give a reason for our hope in Christ. Note that this explanation for hope comes. You're only ready to give a witness after you've considered yourself to be blessed and happy in Jesus. After you refuse to panic or worry. After you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in that particular area. When that happens, then you're ready to give a witness. See, when that happens, people will observe your behavior and they're going to say, how can you put up with that kind of treatment? I would have snapped by now. How are you able to do this? And here is Peter's overarching theme of Christ being our source of hope in hurtful times. He's telling us Jesus alone provides a solid basis for hope amid suffering. Jesus, only Jesus. You, you try to cope with your suffering in other ways, it's not, going to be, it's not going to last. And it's also not going to help you be ready to give a witness. And he says, we ought to do this. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Notice, with meekness and fear. What is meekness? What is meekness? Was the Roman Empire known as being meek? No. Powerful maybe, but not meek. Brutal, but not meek. Moses was a meek man. Powerful, yes. But also meek. The meekest man that ever lived, he certainly was not weak. Jesus said that he was meek and lowly. What is meekness? It's strength, it's power under control. He says with meekness and fear. Fear does not mean cringing, dread. It means reverence. See, when people see your life under control in a chaotic age, they say something is different about you. Peter's writing at the time of the Roman emperors, um, when Nero was emperor, during the Roman Empire, when Nero was emperor. And, and remember what they did. They took Christians, they poured oil on them, hot tar on them. They nailed them to crosses alive. And then they would set them on fire. And they used them to light their gardens. That's the society in which these Christians lived. That's what's happening to God's people who are following 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. But do you know what turned the Roman Empire upside down and caused the gospel of Jesus Christ to spread? It was the ability of these Christians to suffer righteously, not timidly, not fiercely, uh, fearlessly, but righteously as did the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
You see a Chinese student standing up against the oppression of a godless Chinese red government said, Lies written in ink cannot obscure truth written with blood. See, we, we have to have a superior cause and calling. And that cause and calling is Jesus Christ. We don't need to be arrogant. Did you know that you can win an argument, but you can lose an audience? We're not trying to win an argument. We're not trying to win a campaign. We're trying to win people to Jesus Christ. God help us to have genuine humility. True humility will disarm those who oppose. A Christian ought to stand out like a gardenia in a garbage can. And we ought to be able to, to live in such a way with confidence in God that ought to cause people to ask, what makes you tick? A classic example in the Bible is Paul and Silas. They're thrown into prison for preaching the gospel in Philippi. The Bible says there's an earthquake. The earthquake, it caused the door, jail doors to be shaken. The bonds fell from the shackles, from the hands and legs of Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners. The keeper of the prisoner thought that the prisoners had fled, so he was going to fall on his own sword. He's going to commit suicide rather than being put to death and tortured for letting these very significant prisoners escape. But Paul and Silas saw the, the jailer and said, look, do yourself no harm. We're all here. We haven't escaped. We've taken advantage uh, of this opportunity to, to, to stay put. We're here. We recognize governmental authority. And if God doesn't set us free, then here we are. We're all here. But the important thing is this. The man had heard Paul and Silas praising God and praying at midnight. You know what he did? Acts 16 says he called for a light. He came in, looked around, and asked the question, can you guys tell me how can I be saved? Wouldn't you like for somebody to ask you that question? You live so different, and you have such a peace, and you have such a power in your presence, not when things are going well, but when things are not going well, how can I too be saved? I think about Brother Nelson Slaughter gave his testimony this morning about his neighbor. And I believe God's doing a work there. And Brother Slaughter could have responded so many different ways based upon human perspective. But God did a work in Brother Slaughter's heart. And, and his main concern was that his neighbor would be able to get saved. And so God's been leading him and directing and in, in, um, over a course of time and and, um, and God's doing a work there in this neighbor's heart. And I, and, I, and I thought this morning when he gave that testimony that that is what Peter's talking about right here. Number five. Notice in verse 16. How do you respond when you do right but you're treated wrong? He says, having a good conscience. That whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Number five, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. Not only do we set apart Christ as Lord over the event, not only do we surrender to his lordship, but now we must maintain a good conscience. Remember again, verse 8 through 12, he was cataloging these nine virtues that mark us as God's holy and hopeful people. 
Then he pointed out that although living right, it generally is going to prove to be beneficial to us, but sometimes, sometimes it'll provoke wicked people. When this happens, Peter writes, we should endure the unjust treatment of others with unwavering integrity. This maintenance of a good conscience, even during persecution, opposition, it will draw attention from the pagan crowd and even silence slanders. In other words, Peter argues that a life of consistent integrity is a quiet defense for the Christian life. It opens opportunity for testimony regarding the lordship of Jesus Christ. See, Peter brings this section to a close by echoing a principle he stated back in chapter 1, verse 20. Would you look over there, chapter 1 and verse 20? Excuse me, 2 and verse 20. In chapter 2, verse 20. He said, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? In other words, when you've done wrong and you're receiving the, 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 the just reward for wrongdoing. What, why should you get an award for taking patiently the, the, the punishment, the, 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 the consequences of wrongdoing? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, he says, God says, I'd accept that. That's good. Because that's like my son Jesus. And so he says in verse number 16 of chapter 3. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers. They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Verse 17. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well doing than for evil doing. He says if you're going to suffer... The better option is suffer for doing right versus suffering for doing wrong. You you don't want to be known as a sufferer because you deserve it. Suffer like Jesus. Suffer for the cause of of, uh, the gospel. What is Peter trying to dig at when he says, however, that we ought to have a good conscience? Well, he's getting down to the inside of us, to the inner man. He's trying to unearth that which is needful, and that is integrity. Isn't that what's missing? Our whole political system would be different if we had politicians of integrity. Nothing speaks louder or more powerfully than a life of integrity. Nothing. Nothing stands the test like solid character. Character will always win the day. Horse Greeley wrote, Fame is a vapor, popularity an accident, riches take wing, and only character endures. Living a life of integrity is the most effective defense against slander. Maintain a good conscience. Well, how do you do that? Keep short accounts with God, 1 John 1, 9. Deal with sin. In other words, to have a good conscience, you've got to keep the window clean. And then you've got to get into God's Word. You've got to let light into that window. We've got to maintain a good conscience. A strong good conscience results from obedience based upon truth. No Christian 
should ever suffer because of evil doing. No Christian should be surprised if he suffers, however, for well-doing. Our world is so mixed up. Isaiah 5 and verse 20, people call evil good and good evil. They, They put darkness for light, light for darkness. That's our society. The religious leaders of Jesus' day called him a, a, uh, a, an evil person, a person who does evil. That's what the, 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 the malefactor means when they called him that in John 18. He's an evil, he does wrong, he does evil things. Well, how wrong people can be. They were wrong about Jesus, they can be wrong about God's people as well. We must maintain a good conscience. And the secret to having a good conscience is to practice the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we fear God, we don't need to fear man. If you don't fear God, you will fear man. Now, the underlying and unwavering principle is that the unjust suffering is always better than deserved punishment. And sometimes, though we cannot fully explain why, it is God's will that His people should suffer for doing what is right. Jesus is our example. He's going to get into it again in verse number 18. But how about Job? Job, a man who turned away from evil, took care of his family, walked with God. He was a man, Job chapter 1, verse 1. He was renowned for his integrity. But suddenly, without warning, seemingly without reason, he lost everything. He lost everything. He lost his flocks, his cattle, his servants, his children, and finally his health. And this is not a fairy tale. This is an actual account of a real person whose name is Job. But despite his great suffering and inability to predict or even comprehend it, he's been remembered as an example of enduring patience throughout the ages. And the phrase, the patience of Job, continues to be used as a common expression today. I would not wish the life of Job on anyone. But then I'm not God either. I've never been too good at directing anybody else's life. I've had a hard enough time keeping my own track. But I have observed a few Job's in my years in ministry. They come under that fourth class condition. If you, God would that you suffer, it's unlikely, but it's possible. If you are one of those modern day Job's, Don't waste the opportunity. Don't waste your time trying to figure out why. Someday, all will be made clear. For now, just follow the five responses that Peter gives us. If God has called you to be a Job, it's a rare calling. Remember that the Lord is not only full of compassion, but He's also full of control. He'll not leave you without hope. Let me leave you with two verses you may want to jot down. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's another one, Proverbs 16 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Tonight, let's listen to Peter's counsel. Calmly, quietly, let's let these five points be counsel from God that we allow to sink in. You may not need it tonight, but if you stay on the course of being a follower of Jesus, there may be a time you're going to need to know how to respond. Let's stand together, please.